This is the Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. A warm welcome to all our subscribers on the Hindu on Books podcast, where we discuss threadbare books that deal with our world and help us navigate it. I'm Nistula Hebbar, political editor of the Hindu, and today. I am going to be speaking with Nalin Mehta, political scientist, journalist and author, on his book The New BJP: Modi and the Making of the World's Largest Political Party. Welcome Nalin, it's a great pleasure to have you here and to talk about your wonderful book and I can't help but comment that this is a very very good time to be discussing your book especially since the results of the five assembly polls including Uttar Pradesh have come in and a lot of the things that you talk about in your book we could see them unfolding through the campaign of the bjp welcome once again thanks very much nistula an absolute pleasure to be here and thank you for your very generous comments so i have been covering the bjp since 2004 and i hate to make this about me but the first question that i have to ask you is about what i saw and whether that tallies with what you think is the kind of kind of a delineation of the various eras that the bjp has gone through since its foundation as the jansangh in the early 1950s i usually divide the bjp into the early jansangh era which kind of continued till the 70 till 77 then you had the vajpayee adwani thing taking off the partnership taking off where both vajpayee ji etc were were coming in from a a space where the congress was the hegemonic party and then you have the the modi era and the new bjp that you have described in such uh, good detail would you say that these are the three epochs so to speak of the bjp and uh, when you went into research a book uh, were there any clean breaks like this so i i think i would agree with you generally nisula i would just add couple of things that in the pre 1980 phase which is the jansang phase uh, i think there were two sub parts to that there was the from the from the time of tama prasad mukherjee until the early 60s there was one phase of the jansang which was which after shama prasad mukherjee's death was uh, it was uh, how the interface between the jansang and the rss took place then there was a second phase within jansang from the mid 60s onwards where they entered into coalitions with other parties that were not ideologically similar but were united in the opposition to the congress and that was spearheaded spearheaded by nanaji deshmukh for example played a very strong role in that and that continued up till the the merger of the jansang into the janta party and from in the post 1980 bjp the bjp is formally formed in 1980 i think i would divide that into almost into three parts if you like the first part is the is the phase that the bjp when it's formed in 1980 it claims that it is the the real janta party in fact the election commission initially agreed with that and they suspended the janta party symbol of the ramp janta party that was headed by chandrashekar for 6 months there were assembly elections due that year in several states and they accepted the bjp because the bjp's argument was that a majority of the mlas mps and cabinet ministers from the erstwhile janta party had moved to to the bjp later on the election commission changed its position and recognized chandrashekar's ram party as the real janta party so that was the original bjp and also vajpayee announced at that point when they talked about gandhian socialism he talked about the fact that their ideology was very similar to the janta party's ideology so this was a the this bjp was making a differentiation from what later became 
identified as the core issues of what the Jansang originally were and then the BJP. So that first phase lasted from 1980 to about 1988-89, characterized by the complete breakdown of the party into two seats in 1984. And then the second phase starts with the Palampur resolution when they take the Ram Temple's formation as a primary, as a key goal of the party. And that goes on till the mid, from the 1989 onwards, till the mid-90s. I think the third phase starts when BJP comes to power and this, in the beginning, it is splendid isolation, but then there is a phase of coalition making. You know, the phase under Vajpayee is very much about coalition making and about how do you make the BJP acceptable to other parties in ways that the older BJP or the Janssen before that didn't have to do it because it just wasn't big enough to face this kind of a challenge. Um, and I think the new BJP, which is the twenty post-2014 BJP, which is really the BJP crafted by Narendra Modi and and by Amit Shah as his uh, able lieutenant in that, is a very different party from that one. And it's different because I think pre-2014 BJP, to use the old stereotype, is an urban party, largely an urban-focused party, largely an upper-caste party. The post-2014 BJP is very different from that. And this is a new phase of BJP which Narendra Modi has kick-started, which has also powered its growth because it's fundamentally different from the old one. And one of the ways in which it is fundamentally different from the old BJP is that it is a completely obesified political party. It is not just a Brahman Banya party as it was considered earlier. It is very much a party that appeals to a lot of the backward communities and the MBCs, etc. We have seen that demonstration in the UP Assembly election results this time around as well. And uh, in fact, the whole of the election it seemed to me at one point hunger hung over the fact whether these communities which had stuck to the BJP in 2014, 17 and 19 would continue to stick to them. You have, along with Sanjeev Singh, your colleague and our old friend, come up with the Mehta Singh Index and there has been some talk about it. Uh, can you just walk me through this very important index and what what all did you find and what are the differences that other academics seem to have with you on this? Great question, Mr. Lai. But before I answer that, if you'll allow me with your permission, I just wanted to make one more point, which is the context for the Meta Singh Index as well, uh, and about the new BJP. You mentioned about the coming in of the newer caste and socially it became different. I wanted to add the point that this BJP became significantly a deeply rural party. And how it becomes deeply rural is that uh, the data shows that post-2014, uh, if you look at rural seats in the Hindi heartland, there are 225 Lok Sabha seats in the Hindi heartland, which is basically 10 Hindi-speaking states in North India. Uh, 127 of them are, are rural seats. The BJP wins over 40% of the vote share in only 21 of these seats in 2009. In 73 of these seats, it wins in, in 2014 uh, for more than 40% of vote share. But in 2019, it wins over 70%, over 74% of the seats, which is 95 seats. It wins over 40% vote share. That shows the deepening of the BJP's rural depth. If you look at UP in particular, there are 80 Lok Sabha seats, out of which 46 are rural. In only 8% of them in 2009, BJP had won more than 40% vote share. 2014, over 82%. Over 2019, over 76%. And in this UP election in 2022, we are seeing the same trend. The BJP's rural roots are now very deep. Its urban penetration remains as strong as ever. So that was the background. On the Mehta Singh Index, the reason why Sanjeev and I set up the Mehta Singh Index basically was because we found that our sense as reporters working on the ground, 
talking to different political parties, traveling and understanding what's happening in the election, we were getting a sense that anecdotally, that there is a huge gap in the academic discourse around caste and political representation around the BJP and the reality on the ground. We were, and what do I mean by that? What we, what, what I mean by that is that here are the two poles of this debate. Narendra Modi last year gave a speech to his party MPs. And he said in that speech that out of the all the Lok Sabha MPs elected by the BJP in 2019 to the Lok Sabha, 68.9% of his MPs were of the BJP's MPs were either OBC or scheduled caste or scheduled tribe. We saw that in the reshuffle that happened last year, actually. Exactly. So, so uh, you saw that in the reshuffle, uh, but uh, he was also giving the, uh, in terms of the Council of Ministers representation, but in terms of the MPs elected, he gave that number. If you take out the MPs who got elected from reserved seats, SC and ST, and only look at the open seats, the, the general category seats, that percentage is still around 60%. So, this is one side, one side of the argument. The other side, the one of the uh, greatest scholars of Hindu nationalism globally, Christoph Jafferlo, he's published a book recently, Modi's India. And he and uh, Giles Verniers of Ashoka University and the Ashoka University Trivedi Center for Data, they have been publishing a lot of data on political representation and caste. Christoph has argued, conversely, that the 2014 triumph of Narendra Modi's BJP and the 2019 triumph of, of his party actually were, in his words, the revenge of the upper caste elite. They actually put out numbers saying that the OBC representation among the BJP's MPs in the 2019 Lok Sabha is only 18%. Whereas, look at Modi's numbers. Modi is talking of a totally different number. So, when I looked at these two extremes, it looked to me that, look, you can have different interpretations of facts. You can have different perspectives. You can have different viewpoints. But you cannot have different facts. The caste of MPs is is an easily verifiable fact because this data by Ashoka University was looked extremely uh, strange to me when at first glance and there was such a dichotomy between Narendra Modi's data. Only one could be right. Either Modi was right or Jafferlow and Jeels and Ashoka University's data which has spent millions of dollars on research over the last 10 years doing this. So, so you know, we, we actually went to them and asked them, can we look at your data? And, uh, and they didn't give it to us and that data is not public. So, therefore, we then decided that why don't we Look at this afresh. So to do a revisionist understanding of political representation in, in India, we, look, we created the Mehta Singh Index. And what did we do? What we did was we tracked over 4,000 politicians from four parties, uh, Congress, BSP, BJP and Samajwadi Party over several decades between 1990 and, 20, and 2019. We tracked them at different levels. Lok Sabha candidates by these four parties, Vidhan Sabha candidates, office bearers of the BJP and the Council of Ministers. And here is what we found. In the Lok Sabha 2019, we found that 57.5% of the BJP's MP candidates which were fielded in, in UP were either OBC or scheduled caste. In the Vidhan Sabha of 2017, we found that 52.8% of the BJP plus candidates were, were either OBC or SC. In the office bearers of the UP BJP, we found for OBC and SCs, 50% representation. In the Council of Ministers of Yogi Adhanath, in the government that is uh, a bit of between 2017 to 2022, the representation of OBC and SC ministers was 48.5, uh, 48.1%. And district level presidents of the BJP, there are 98 district presidents of the BJP in UP. They, UP doesn't have 98 districts, but in some districts, BJP has more than one president. 
BJP has its own divisions that they... So there, the OBC-SE representation was about 35.6%. So, at every level, Lok Sabha, Vidhan Sabha, ticket selection, office bearers, council of ministers, district level, we found a, a percentage of OBC and SC representation post-2014, which was of a uh, which was of a different magnitude altogether compared to the pre-2014 BJP one. And secondly, which was higher than every other political party in UP. And this, Modi was right, and Christoph and Gilles and Ashoka University were totally wrong. So this leads me, if I if I you know go by your uh, Mehta Singh index, this leads me to the question that you know the BJP also gets very solid support from the upper castes. So where does that leave them? In the sense that if you have the support of one set of communities, which could be inimical in the social hierarchy to another set of communities, how do you reconcile these support bases? That's a great question, Mistula. And uh, let me illustrate this point by by the comparison between Akhilesh Yadav's previous Council of Ministers and Yogi Adityanath. I just want to make one point and then I'll answer your question directly after that. The point I wanted to make was that the biggest shift in the BJP, as you've also pointed out, post-2014, was the influx of OBCs, non-Yadav OBCs, at a very mass level, to a lesser extent, non-Jadav Dalits, right? Right. If you, you know, even Yogi Aitanath, for example, he's been talked about, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Thakurvad. If you look at his council of ministers, you will see that there are more OBCs in his council of ministers than there are Thakurs or Brahmins. That's one. Secondly, Akhilesh Yadav's council of ministers had more Thakurs and Brahmins than Yogi Aitanath's council of ministers. Also, the OBC representation in his council of ministers was the was slightly higher than Akhilesh Yadav's. The difference is, that while they had similar number of OBCs, in fact, Altana had slightly more, in Akhilesh Yadav's Council of Ministers, all the OBC ministers were, all but one were Yadavs. In Yogi Aitana's Council of Ministers, all but one were non-Yadavs. So that's one, that's the context. Now, your question on upper castes. I think what has happened is, this is important to state, and that the BJP has not lost upper caste support. It's not like it's shifted from having only having upper caste support and shifted entirely to OBC and SCs. What has happened is that newer castes in very large numbers have come into its tent. They don't come into your tent. They can come into your tent once because of your talking the talk, but they'll not stay there if you're not walking the talk. These numbers in the Mehta Singh Index show that they were given bhagidari. They were given a, a share in... Yeah, but the pie is only so big, na, Nalin. Uh, no, that's what I'm saying. So I'm, I'm answering the question. Let me come to the point. The point is that when these guys were were, were given the, this share, the share of the upper caste went down. Is the share of the upper caste still higher than the share of the population? Yes, but it's lower. But but it's but, but it's lower than before, and the share of OBCs is far is the highest now compared to others. Now, obviously, when you suddenly have newer influx in your social coalition. There will be conflict between between those who will now lose out. And what you saw with defections, what you saw some a lot of the internal stress in the BJP is also because of that. It's almost like the early Congress in the 50s and 60s. If everybody's in your tent, they'll always be jostling for 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 space between the guys who were traditionally in, uh, had more levers of power and the and the newcomers who've now come in. That's part of normal politics. But so far, BJP has managed it adroitly enough. And why do you think that is so? Why have they managed to manage it? I think because this has been a very conscious strategy. See, one of the things that was clear to us, uh, which is why we extended the level of the analysis to multiple axes. We didn't just look at Lok Sabha MPs because 
that can give you a skewed uh, that's very important but that can give you a only a partial picture we looked at every level of political representation see because when voters vote they don't look at no no could it be that you see political parties don't exist in a vacuum they also exist in a peer group of other political parties could it be that the decline of the congress also gave very few options for the upper castes to look around they did put their faith in mayawati in 2007 and you know some uh, some of the rajputs thakurs also did shift to akhilesh's party in 2012 but now they seem to have decided that this uh, bjp they need to stick with the bjp as the other options on the ground don't seem to be very very attractive so i think there are two reasons one the bjp has more space to play with on representation because muslim representation in bjp is low in these structures of power right so it has more uh, more seats to give out the second i think is you are right uh, see conversely to academic discourse and what the stereotypes are upper caste as you rightly said in 2007 great thing about 2007 election was the brahmin dalit alliance right right uh, upper caste uh, thakurs in particular were overrepresented in the samajwadi party structures and if you compare the bjp and samajwadi party the samajwadi party which was the party of the obcs what happened was i think the two things which helped the bjp the first is that the bsp ended up while being the party of dalits ended up being a party being dominated by jadavs and that gave the space for multiple other subcastes among dalits who were who with the bjp could go to and say look you are not getting enough representation the same thing happened with akhilesh yadav and this election shows that even more that instead of being the party of the obcs akhilesh yadav sp ended up becoming the party of ahids and only of yadav and others were not given that much space and of muslims so what happens is when you are not getting enough space there the bjp is welcoming you and this consciousness of ever since the mandal agitation of the of the early late 80s obc and sc consciousness became very important but it was dominated by dominant caste within these two structures what the bjp has done is is opened that up so for example in obcs in up there are more than 75 obc castes in the, in the state list of up and what the bjp did was it a lot of it gave due recognition to those to those subcastes and gave it adequate space this side that's at the obc level and the sc level at the upper caste level i think it's a misnomer to say that samajwadi party was only party of obcs because if you look at the representation thakurs had had a disproportionate level of representation in his council of ministers he had more thakurs and more brahmins in his council of ministers than yogi adityanath has so the bjp has done this balancing very well there is one vote that uh, one vote category that has um, emerged in recent times and that is the women's vote and a lot of it seems to be going to the nda in bihar uh, nitish kumar of course has consciously cultivated that vote in odisha as well we see that navin patnaik gets the bulk of women's vote of course he's non nda but uh, there are certain chief ministers who have banked on the women's vote which had which seems a lot more loyal and the bjp seems to have cottoned on to it and i find that in their communication political communication especially since the bihar elections there is lot more focus on the women's vote a lot of the social welfare programs are also directly targeted at women and in how to ease their everyday life how do you look at this phenomena and how do you fashion the women's vote and how do you read it Uh, are they are they as loyal as it's being said, or is it just you know one of those things that sticks to women? That's a great question, Ms. Sula. I think first I want to say that um, the women's vote has been a game-changing factor in Indian politics. We are seeing the old rules of politics being broken. A major part of that is because of the making of a new women's vote in ways that 
in ways that are very different from what has happened before. So since the mid-60s, the Election Commission has been giving us data on gender-based data on voting. And there's always been a massive difference in women voter turnout and male voter turnout. In the early years, it was 10 to, to the magnitude of 10 to 12%. So 2019 was the first election in which the first general election in India in which the women turnout rate was slightly higher than the male turnout rate. At the same time, uh, the data shows us that in 2019, in most states in which the Congress and the BJP were in a direct context, women voted more for BJP than they voted for Congress. So, just at the time when you're having this great uh, shift on gender balance and a much needed shift where women are voting more than ever before, and they are also shifted to the BJP because historically, the data shows us, women in na- at the national level always preferred the Congress to the BJP. There was a- yes, we remember the 1980s. Rajiv Gandhi used to get a lot of support from women, especially after the Panchayati Raj Act, etc., you know, which gave representation to women at Panchayati Raj levels, etc. This is one of those electoral tropes that you know, we've been taught while reporting. From the time of Indira Gandhi onwards, uh, from Nehru to Indira Gandhi to Rajiv Gandhi, women were a loyal vote bank to the extent that they voted. Uh, They voted more for the Congress at the national level than for any other parties. That gap between BJP and Congress on women voting started narrowing in the 90s and early 2000s was narrowing. But Congress was still ahead. What happens post-2014 is the BJP moves ahead. And 2019, the first election when women are voting more than men, that is a significant shift. Now, the question is, that shift is, it happened, is is absolutely unquestionable. Even in UP, this, in 2022, the exit poll data... Face showed 11% more women. Exactly, exactly. Now, the question is, why did this happen? Did it happen organically? Or was it part of a the outcome of a concerted strategy by Modi, by BJP, by the Sun, which shifted this? That's one of the questions I look at very closely in the book, The New BJP. There's a 25,000 word chapter on this. And my answer to this is as follows. This happened as a consequence of five major strategies that Narendra Modi and the BJP consciously adopted, which led to a shift in the women vote. What are these strategies? By the way, you as somebody who's tracked the BJP for such a long time, Ms. Sula, you would remember that the women vote was very crucial to Narendra Modi, even when he was chief minister, in the years that he was chief minister. 100%. I still remember that every year, then chief minister Narendra Modi would have the Kanya Kelavani week for education, for, you know, driving up enrollments of girl child into schools, etc. And, you know, it, it was really, you know, he really used to kind of go to the people with that. And women leaders of the BJP from Delhi, including current finance minister, Nirmala Sitaraman and others would go, you know, as part of an assignment to to help with that particular campaign. So, yeah, I mean, women voters have always been extremely important. So, in fact, in fact, in, in 2002, for example, when he first started talking about the Chhapani Chhati, I still remember covering many meetings where there would be a gasp and, and, and we didn't write about it, but, you know, it would have an impact. And then 2007 onward, it became a concerted strategy with all women meetings that he would, cons- he would do in every district long before the actual election campaign would start. But from 2014, what happened? Um, first, Narendra Modi, we created the Narad Index, which tracked all of the BJP's communications over a 15-year period, offline, in the press releases, speeches, Modi's speeches, BJP's internal literature, RSS uh, organizers, the issues of the RSS, their mouthpiece, Vijay Dashmi speeches of the RSS, Sarsang Chalak. 
and we try to see how what are the pat what are they talking about what do they give importance to when and how both offline and online we track all their facebook and twitter accounts for 3 years and on the nar i mean then we run an ai filter on it to see patterns of communication that you would not normally miss from the naked eye and what we saw surprised us if you look at narendra modi's communication patterns on the narad index women feature as among the top 5 things he talks about much more than any of the traditional core issues of the bjp whether it's ram mandir whether it's uh, kashmir whether it's terrorism others women is in the top 5 in fact even after the in the victory speech at the bjp headquarters after the victory in 22 2022 in up if you saw his speech he spoke a lot about women right so and between 2016 to 19 there was a 116% increase in modi's speech on speaking on women by the way modi speaks much more about women than the bjp does and the bjp speaks much more about women than the rss does the numbers are all there in the in the book but that's the gist of it that's one that's communication but communication by itself doesn't deliver you votes you can talk the talk what, what are you going to walk so at the level of representation just as the bjp gave representation at the level of ticket selection and party offices and ministerial offices to other caste and that's what allowed it to deepen its ingrowth into categories that were never traditional bjp voters the same thing happened with women in the 2019 lok sabha election the bjp has gave the highest number of tickets to women number 1 it has the largest women contingent in parliament as you know you track parliament and by the way uh, it it didn't just give tickets to women it gave tickets to strong women candidates so who won so the percentage of the bjp ticket candidates was the highest that's one second among the uh, ministers of uh, we tracked women representation at the central level for four uh, for three epochs the modi era the manmohan singh era upa 1 and 2 and the vajpayee era and what did we find we find that between 2014 to 2020 women had 12.7% share of the ministerial uh, council of ministers in modi's government which was much higher than 11% in under both upa 1 and 2 under manmohan singh and much higher than 7% under vajpayee so in fact at 17% in 2015 modi had the highest ever so historically women have never been more represented at the central ministerial level as under the modi regime and that includes previous regimes where the left was part of in the united front times and the congress regimes of upa 1 and 2 that's one second at the party level the bjp has more women office bearers than any other party in it's india it's in their constitution actually they made a constitutional change they made a change in their party constitution they have to reserve i think 30% of all seats yeah so women office bearers at the central level in the party are 16.9% compare this with progressive parties so cpim 14.7% trinamool congress 13% cpi 11.1% NCP 10.8%, Congress 8.5%, and that includes Sonia Gandhi, uh, which is exactly half of women representation in the BJP at the office bearer level. When JP Nadda recently did a reshuffle, you would remember Nisula in September 2020, 12 new vice presidents of the BJP were announced. Five of them were women, 41%. I'd still like to see more women general secretaries. You know, that's a more effective position to hold in the party, and that they're still lacking in. No, you are right, Nisula. What I'm trying to say is that. look women representation in this country has been very low compared to the women share of population whether i mean 12% of council of ministers is very low compared to the population but it is historically the highest and it's the point is that it's better than what it was before both in the bjp and compared to every other regime and the same argument works for the political party level right 
I'm not saying this is ideal. I'm saying it is better than what any other party is offering. Should it be more? Absolutely, should be more. Okay, I'll take your point. But I want to come to the elephant. I want to make one more point, Anistala. The this is also not enough. The point you made about schemes. These are not women-specific schemes alone, but general schemes. PM Awas Yojana in this country, which is a highly patriarchal country, Nisla, you know very well that in this country, if you are a if you are a woman, you do do not automatically inherit parental property. Your brother inherits it, right? Uh, in in most in most cases, because the law doesn't recognize unless the parent. Not according to the law, though. I think there were some changes that were made. Only only in two thousand seven, the Supreme Court gave equal rights to women. For paternal, for ancestral property, uh, but only for people whose parents died in 2007. Only in August 2020, the Supreme Court, by a judgment, extended that right to perpetuity. In such a country, in PM Awas Yojana, 17 million houses were built, and the government made a, a rule that these houses will be registered in the names of women at the first instance. 68 percent of these houses were registered only in the names of women, or jointly within with 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 their women and or their husbands and their husbands. When you have that happening, many of these women will vote for BJP at least once. Secondly, Swachh Bharat toilet, seventeen million house toilet, personal toilets were built, not public ones. Those those were specifically aimed at women in rural areas. Now you look at other schemes. PM Awas Yojana, like I said, sixty six percent in the names of women or jointly with men. Atal Pension Yojana, fifty six percent women. Jan Dhan Yojana, fifty three percent. Jeevan Jyoti, forty percent. Stand Up India, eighty one percent. So suddenly you are. With the direct benefit uh, transfer architecture coming in of of public welfare, women are benefiting in ways that they've never benefited before. All of this put together has created a new women's constituency, which is voting for the BJP. Whether this is permanent, my question now is this, a, a different question. Going from women, which who have been actively wooed, let's let's go to the category which has actually been invisible almost uh, in the BJP, which is Muslims. and consistently not giving tickets to muslims this time as well bjp did not give tickets to muslims in up uh, in goa of course they gave to other minorities christians and in the northeast minorities are given tickets to fight their candidates and there seems to be a lot of tokenism going on and there is a difficult relationship between the muslim community and this government as we saw during the protests against caa and the nrc issues that were cropping up So, how do you look at that in the context of the new BJP? Because this is not this is an old problem which has actually got exacerbated under the new BJP. So, on the on the issue of Muslims, there is no question that polarization politically helps the BJP, right? Every time there is polarization, the BJP politically benefits from it. That's one. By the way, when the BJP constitution was written, you will recall Nisrul Sekandar uh, among the three people who were asked to write the constitution. Yeah, I think Beg Sahab was the first person to fight under the Kamal symbol in a. I think from Beitul there was a bipole after the eighty in the eight in nineteen eighty or something, and he was the first BJP candidate to fight with the Kamal symbol, Muslim candidate. So yeah, all those uh, things are there, but you know. Fascinating. You used to say the Kamal symbol. It reminded me of an anecdote that. Originally, the BJP had asked the Election Commission in 1980 for the Hathi as its symbol, uh, the Hathi, which later became the BSP symbol, and they, that was denied. And then the BJP was chose the Kamal, and they said the Kamal because it's the symbol of revolution. They said at least that's what they told the Election Commission, and also the symbol of the Hindu goddess Lakshmi. So anyway, coming to the question on Muslims, I think historically polarization always politically helps the BJP. What about representation? So I think this. thing of muslims not being represented in in bjp's ticket selection in up in particular is not 
new. This is not a new innovation by the new BJP. It is a return to original principles which the BJP originally followed. Let me. Why do I say this? I am looking at UP data of Lok Sabha candidates fielded by the party from 1991 onwards. In 1991, the year before the demolition of Babri Masjid, the BJP fielded zero Muslim candidates. 1996, zero. 1998, one. 1999, one. 2004, two. 2009, one candidate. 2014, one. 2019, zero. So what the BJP has done is that it was always doing tokenism in UP by fielding Ikka Dukka, a candidate, right? It was either actually zero then in the years of accommodation of the coalition building with Vajpayee, it went to one or two. It never went more than two in UP. And in 2019, it was at a historic low of, of, of one. Well, a historic low of above zero. In, uh, sorry, 2014. In 2017, of the Vidhan Sabha election of 2017, they did away with the tokenism. The BJP calculated that the tokenism does not do much for us in the BJP's calculation. So let's do away with it. And let's give up the political correctness around this. And they went back to the old principles which animated the party in the early 90s. And that was repeated in 2019. Now, what was the result of this politically? By the way, the BJP did not field candidates, as you know, in 2017 and 19. But in both the governments that were formed after these elections, a Muslim minister was made, uh, was appointed in both these. No, that's okay. I mean, you have given me an exhaustive description statistically. But my simple point here is, Nalin, when you have a party which is hegemonic in its spread and has a difficult relationship with the largest minority group in the country, it can't be good for the country and it can't be good for the people, you know. So how do you think, do you think that there will be attempts to now address this issue or BJP is happy going its polarized way? So my answer to this is as follows, that in the political domain, I'm keeping aside the subjective judgment on this question, which is very important. In the political domain, the data tells us, including in this 2022 election, in Muslim-dominated constituencies, the BJP is winning more seats than it's losing. In 17, in 19, in 22, right? It helps them. This is the reason why they did away with the tokenism. And as long as they keep winning on it, the calculation is that the Muslim vote is not required by the BJP to win. Now, is that good or bad? Of course, when you have a very large section of your population, which is not represented in your leadership structure, there is a problem with that. But right now, the BJP is winning on it. I don't see any impulse to change that. I think uh, politically, the polarization model, including in Muslim-dominated constituencies, helps the BJP to win more seats. I don't see an impulse to change it currently from a purely from a hard real politic point of view of the party's managers. Okay, one last question. The BJP situation currently right now. The other thing, Crystal, I do want to say, when I put this question, the question you asked me, I put this question in the book, which is quoted in the book to several BJP leaders, that how do you respond to this? Their answer on the record was that we do not make a distinction in the welfare schemes. That is what Amit Shah also said in his interviews in this. That's the standard response that they often give, which is the Sapka Saath, Sapka Vikas, right? So then I went and checked in UP. We, I, we did two kinds of checks. Firstly, we did random checks in certain Muslim-dominated villages around Saranpur on uh, on on PM Awas and uh, and Swachh Bharat toilets. And there it was it, it was dipstick service, and there it was fairly distribution was very very good. Then we looked at the data, and the data tells us that in UP, in both Swachh Bharat toilets and PM Awas Yojana. The share of the Muslim population 
who got these benefits is on par with the share of the population. So statistically, what the BJP says on welfare scheme is borne out. But is that enough? I don't think that's enough. All right. Now, my final question to you, Nalan, to conclude this very interesting discussion on your book. And and since I've covered BJP from 2004, I'm totally riveted by your book, I must tell you. The final question I want to ask you is that it's being said that the BJP right now has ushered in a kind of a second republic, you know, in India, or the fourth party system is already underway. Do you look at, do you think that this template of looking at the rise of the BJP is correct? Or would you come up? with some other template for looking at it. Mr. I have actually never really understood this idea of the Second Republic. Because, see, there's a lot of commentary, for example, after the 2022, after the UP results yesterday, that there is there's almost a, a lot of, I see a lot of experts blaming the voters. I see a lot of people because they've seen a result. I mean, I mean you see the commentary on so many, tele- so many experts writing on social media and on television channels. And there is Matam. There is a whole thing that that this 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 whole that this this is the end of the republic that the new republic has to be built we will fight from the ashes it's almost like the voters are letting down this country my question on the second republic is not uh, related to that it's more the french building of the second republic you know with the second uh, there's a bonaparte and the bourbons the return of the bourbons etc so it it's to do with the french political scientist tradition so well i misunderstood but but good i did because i did want to make this point in any case so to answer your question seriously mistula is this that i think what the bjp has built between 14 and 19 in terms of a party cadre that is comparable in terms of scale nationally only with the 1950s or pre 1950s congress in terms of its depth and scale i think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that see narendra modi has been central to it he is the catalyst he has led it there is a still there is a very large premium that the prime minister brings to the party and at the party support base will fall in a post modi modi era go question but for those who think the bjp will topple over in a post modi era that that this is a black swan event you remove modi and the bjp is nothing i think they are mistaken i think the bjp is far stronger than that they've built a foundation of cadre building which is unprecedented in this country it has not been done since the 50s they've built party offices in more over 500 districts compared to only 100 districts before 2014 they've done membership drives not before elections but the two biggest membership drives that led to bjp becoming the single largest party in the world were held one after the triumph of 2014 and second after the triumph of 2019 not before and this you know a lot of people tell me what is the big deal in this largest political party in the world because india is the second largest populated country anyway so naturally hoga so what's the big deal i think it is a big deal because china the communist chinese communist party is the second one but the chinese communist party in a, is in a one party system where you have no option you only if you have to can join the chinese communist party in india's case in this country even at the height of the modi of of bjp and narendra modi's greatest political triumph in 2019 over 60% roughly of this country around 60% or more did not vote for the bjp in such a country when you have a party which has such a large membership that is huge it is a single primary pole of our politics and let me interrupt you here i mean when the delhi assembly results came out not even the number of people who had registered in that you know missed call sort of recruitment i mean it, the number of voters did not equal even to that number so let's take a pause on this and the, the largest party thing is all very well but uh, the hegemonic nature of the bjp in the current political 
situation, of course, cannot be argued with. You know, they are in a poll position. And yesterday's assembly results also, of course, demonstrated this. I have an answer to you on that, Nistula. Nistula, on the question of party membership, I'm not saying these party membership numbers are perfect or that there, there is not some double counting or, or that this is permanent. Is it? Many of them come to the party only because uh, only because they want to be close to power. Today, before a BJP loses power, some people will leave. All I'm saying is, this is far more organized and far deeper than competing political parties. That's one. Secondly, on the question of hegemony. You know, hegemony is a very misused word. The BJP, there are many things which I do not agree with, which the BJP does. There are many things which Sam, Dam, Dhan, Ved, which various political parties do. The BJP may do it a bit more than others, may, may be better than, more ruthless at it than others. Uh, it's not like other parties won't do that, especially at the regional party level. The point I'm trying to make, whether you support the BJP or whether you hate the BJP, or what I'm trying to say is, yesterday's political triumph in these four in these four states, this was not because of some play of the hand or because of some underhand tactics. BJP did better politics on the ground. And unless political parties that oppose it do not understand that, and they keep blaming this hegemony, no, no, no. My question was not at all to do with that, Nalin. My question was that as a political scientist, what is the template that you would use, a, a tool as a political scientist to understand this particular dominance? That was my question. Because people have said this is the Rajni Kothari Congress system thing inverted with the BJP now at the top. Then we are in a fourth party system. There are all sorts of other tools as a political scientist. You know that there are theoretical ways of looking at it. Interesting question, Nistula. I think this is different from the Rani Kothari's formulation of the Congress as of the Congress system. There is no question we are in a BJP system now, just as there was a Congress system which the Rani Kothari elegantly coined that phrase. The difference is that the Congress system was based on a great deal of power brokers at every level. It was a system that was in a pre-mass communication age. Today, you are operating in an age of complete digital connectivity. With the with the cheap mobile phone, with uh, and down, which, which breaks across barriers of caste and gender and uh, and rural and urban in ways that were never possible, and that I think the BJP is much better at harnessing. So the difference is that, and also it's so it is this qualitatively different from the previous one. How will it evolve? How do you deal with it? Those are still evolving questions because this is a system in the making. We're only now beginning to understand the system and how it operates. So therefore, but the point the point I want to make is that. When for those who oppose the BJP, a lot of the opposition is only on ideological grounds, which is great. We have, we have to have ideological fights in this country about the direction of what, what is new India, the idea of India. My point is, if people think that the BJP is only winning because of Hindutva, that the BJ, that because if you challenge Hindutva with secularism alone and you only do the ideological fighting, that is enough to beat the BJP because that is not enough. You have to understand the BJP's template and create another template to counter it. What form or shape that will take, that is up to the ingenuity of political parties that oppose the BJP. All I'm saying is, the BJP is not winning only because of Hindutva. The constituency of Hindutva has not expanded from, from its core constituency. The BJP is able to get half of voting voters. All right. That was my question. My question was more theoretical, but thanks a ton for that. And uh, we've had a nice long discussion on your book, which I have also reviewed for The Hindu. And it appeared, I think, on March 4th. Thank you very much, Nalin, for taking out this much time to speak to us and discuss your book, Threadbare. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, such a pleasure talking to you and uh, I'm delighted to be on The Hindu Podcast.
Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at socmed4 s o c m e d4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 